Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm Joe Kennedy. I'm Dave Gebro. Oh, man. Dude, I got to tell you something. Uh, you know, doing all this, uh, this work on, you know, this era of time uh, in music really made me think about some of the shows that I was seeing around that time. It was a fecund period in my <laughs> in my music watching club dwelling shows. Career. So, what years are we talking about here? This uh, particular story came from, I believe, ninety one. Ninety one. Okay. Okay. So, this is uh, not a huge fan, not a big detractor either. Uh, Henry Rollins at the time right. had with the Rollins band that song "Low Self Opinion," low so. Right. Probably my favorite song of his solo career. So I went to see him one night. Can't remember the exact venue in Boston, but um, suffice it to say it had to have been like Paradise or Avalon or something. Mm -hmm. Walk in, there's fucking Henry uh, right there when I walk in. So without having any buildup, just because he's right there a, a foot away from me, I just say, uh, Henry, would you mind signing the back of my ticket? He cringes. Like I tried to set him on fire with an acetylene torch and goes, try to act human. <laughs> That's I've, so at odds with his, uh, his persona. <laughs> <laughs> think he's kinda, kinda, kinda he made me a, feel so little. He, he comes across as a big tough guy. And he's like, he's like cowers in he fear. He like, bullied me. <laughs> I paid to see him and he bullied me, Joe. Oh, Mr. Rollins. Mr. Rollins, <laughs> will you sign my ticket? <laughs> <laughs> this guy was not nice, man. Was he squeezing a cue ball? He was like, the way I remember That's how it, we used to warm up for shows. He would squeeze a cue ball. Really? Like, yeah. He would? Yeah. You can't really... He doesn't do anything when you squeeze it. So that's kind of like... Does he have a sense of humor? It doesn't seem like... Maybe he does. Like he does now. Kind of did then. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I he just know. doesn't like to sign ticket stubs. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I look, I, it's not like I, I'm an autograph collector. I'm Isn't far it, from the king of comedy. It's easier to just sign it than to like go into a <laughs> Yeah, to go into an anti-me tirade. <laughs> like it just takes a second. Thanks you know, a like. frig load to <laughs> be your fan forever. That, suffice it to say, that's where I checked out of his career. <laughs> but if he were to be on the show, I could potentially reassess his discography. Maybe he'll come on. Come on, Henry. Yeah. We know you're listening. Come on, man. Come on. Come, Dave sign still Sign the back of my ticket. He still, still, ha he still has the stub. Come sign it. it. All right, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We do not just cover albums. We do a seriously honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs, plus other appearances on people's records. All releases are slapped with an objectively accurate star rating from zero to five. Which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Today on Discography, we are returning to the scene of the spray canning. Turning <laughs> <the> spray cans. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, back on the replacements, we are going back to our discussion with Bob Mayer. Drunken punk shredding pages from the classic rock playbook turned singer-songwriter asshole swapping out his band for Session Man replacements. Right, those guys. That, that yeah, thing. That so thing. we're going to take you back now to the rest of our discussion with, with author... Replacements biographer right. and author and all-around great guy and raconteur, Bob Mayer. Here is the rest of that discussion. 
So now we move on to, I guess they sign a major label deal. Yeah, well, be, before we go to Tim, I just want to mention, without covering it in great detail, that in 1985, uh, The Shit Hits the Fans oh, comes yeah, out. Right. Uh, this is a twin-tone cassette-only live album uh, recorded live at the Bowery in Oklahoma City uh, on November 11th, 1984, uh, and released uh, January 25, 1985. You can listen on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's yeah, up there. And it, and it is great. R uh, Rolling Stone, uh, which has ceased to matter post-1969 <laughs> or so, included it on their list of the 50 greatest live albums of all time. Do with that nugget of information what you will. Uh, then we uh, certainly move Right, on. so you want to talk about them signing with Sire, Bob? Yeah, I mean, they by the time they had released Let It Be, there was, you know, building buzz, but uh, no real clear pathway to a major label for a band like them. I mean, you know, Jason and the Scorchers had been signed, I think, at that point, the Del Lord, some, you know, kind of bands. Uh, I mean, Axe, to a certain extent, you could say, it, it had been signed, even though they sort of went through Slash and then into the Warner Brothers kind of family. But... Mm -hmm. um, when Let It Be came out, I think people started to really recognize not only is this a great band, but Paul is a kind of generational talent as a songwriter. Or even if they didn't recognize it that much, they, they knew there was something there and that maybe this band was a harbinger of a kind of new kind of music. You know, alternative music basically hadn't been marketed on a, on a major label level to that point. And through a series of circumstances, Michael Hill, who had actually been one of the first guys uh, to book them in New York where they did their first shows at Folk City, uh, he ended up working for Warner brothers he was trying to sign them but he was a young junior a and r man um wasn't making any progress and then again if, as fate and fortune have a big hand in, in all through the replacement story seymour stein the the, the head of sire records mm -hmm. which was also part of warner brothers sees them playing at irving plaza uh very famously after they had played a, a essentially a secret show at cbgb's it was a label showcase for all these labels that were really interested and many of whom had come because the band had made the cover of the village voice in that rj smith story and so of course they they totally bombed that night drove <laughs> all the label people away they play a few day, nights later at Irving Plaza where there's no label people, but Seymour Stein sees them and they get signed. And so um, Seymour signs them. Michael Hill is their A&R man. They go in to make their major label debut, Tim. This is this is where I come in. Um, sure. And this is it's a weird entry point. It's it's meaning this is where you first started to hear yeah, them, as, a fan, as you were aware of them it's right? a, in yeah, real it's time. A strange one, because this is where like a real a real schism sort of falls into place here. Um, and definitely informs the music. Well, for me, right off the bat, the sound of Tim is a little more of its time, where Let It Be is a more timeless kind of sound to mm -hmm. it. Um, it's a little bit, little bit on the slick side. Uh, Tommy Ardelli, a.k.a. Tommy Ramone, produced it. Um, I can't believe you even bothered trying to pronounce his last it's name. It's probably wrong, but, you know, I'm just going <laughs> to go for it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the production seems more dated on this one than it does on the two surrounding it. Like it seems like to right. me, please to meet me and um, let it be kind of hold up more. There's a, there's this a, has a thin kind of sound. It does it. have a thin sound. There's very little low end on it. It's like Husker News records at the time. They're just yeah. so thin. I would disagree that it's more polished in a funny way. It was. In some ways, I guess it depends. You know, all these uh, all these words mean different things to different people. But yes, it was not a great sounding record that I think 
they were expecting. And in fact, I think the band, because they had signed a major label, they were very conscious of not making something that sounded slicker overproduced. Right. And then the process kind of made something thin sounding, uh, you know, which may not have really been their fault. It might have been, you know, Tommy Ramone's sort of doing or, right. uh, you know, he wasn't working with his regular kind of kind of like, so. uh, kind of like uh, Iggy Pop raw, raw power syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, it could it could have been something in the mix, and you know that's one of the things that we've often thought you know uh, of addressing in terms of the archival stuff is like maybe there's something that could be done with Tim, but um, that would be incredible. Yeah. That truly would be great. But in a weird way, I, yeah, I mean, I can hear what you're saying in that it's just to time. just to see what it would be like because you know I'm used to it, and you know while it's got its flaws, it's certainly got its positives. Yeah. But if it had some ba- some balls, uh, right. I, I almost never like when a band goes and like remixes a record. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I almost always. Almost like ninety nine times out of hundred prefer the original. Except for the yeah. case of dead. Except for the case of dead. Right. That's that is that is that is a notable <laughs> exception. Yeah. But 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 it, yeah. I mean it, it it it's like that is the thing with a lot of the replacements major label records. This being the first is um, they are products of their time in terms of production. That's partly because the 80s was a very it was the era of a producer and it was a kind of producer records were a producer's medium at that time yeah we ran into uh, that and, on this show a lot <laughs> and in and, and a weird way the replacements there were no uh, at that point any alternative you know star producers there was no Butch Vig Scott Litt didn't exist yet really you know as, as a superstar producer so you were kind of dealing with you know, veterans of classic rock bands, you know, Sandy Perlman, he produced like the Dream Syndicate and had produced The Clash and stuff. Or Tommy Ramone, you know, he was kind of in the Sire family because obviously the Ramones were on Sire. So it's a, it's a, the replacement sort of production over the next three records. Wow, you brought uh, up Sandy Perlman without mentioning Blue Oyster Cult. Blue Oyster Cult, yeah. <laughs> but, so, but I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's funny that some people, depending on, you know, how old you are, what era you grew up in, what your kind of listening sort of what your audio context is, they hear different things. Some people think Please to Meet Me is this really dated sounding thing. Some people think Weirdly Let It Be is a kind of real indie of its period of its production. Right. And then some people think Tim is. So it's sort of, you know, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test in terms of like the production for these for this for this middle period. Let's focus on one particular thing about Tim. OK, sure. when I think about this record. First of all, I think of the cover, which is very haunting and mm-hmm. very chilling and uninviting, too. Uh, and, you know, Bob's kicked out of the band toward the end of 86. He's also the only member of the band whose face is clearly visible on the cover, and it's upside down. So there's definitely some bizarre interpersonal band politics that are being played out for all the world to see. Yeah, that was the art, artist interpretation. Robert Longo who was a very famous, again, very 80s famous, uh, you know, New York artist. Somebody at Warner Brothers got him to do it. And he hung out with the band for a while. And that in a kind of brilliant way, even though I don't know that the like you say, it's not a very inviting or immediately appealing, especially after like the the beauty of the Let It Be cover and in a way the cheekiness of the of Please to Meet Me cover. Tim is such a weird cover, but it does really capture what was going on in terms of the dynamics and the politics of the band. Bob being this weird looming force that was is kind of blinding or crippling the others. So Longo really did have it right, although he re- it doesn't yeah, really he really make you uh, doesn't really make you love the record cover. You know, no, in, no, in a funny but, way. but you know, it's. Uh it's an accurate statement on what the contents are. So uh, this sure. one has a lot of uh, really amazing songs. Like yeah. The best stuff on this um, is really up there with their, their very finest. Um, Agreed. A lot, lot of great ones on this one. Their most streamed song, by the way, surprisingly, is Swingin' Party. Is it really? Uh, it's think, the number one. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's because Lord did a cover of it, and that's why that's like sort of far right. away. Um, but yeah, it, it's probably... 
you know, I was I was actually saying this to somebody in a, another interview. I think. Uh, it's an album sort of compromised by the politics of the band at the time. Paul's writing was moving in a completely different direction than sort of Bob was going. And there was also interpersonal stuff with Bob that was happening. And, and almost as a sop to Bob, he put on a couple of songs that were really just showcases for Bob to kind of run wild and lay it down clown and, right, and dose of right. thunder. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think he actually, yeah, those, had are, those are, have always struck me as very weird because they, yeah. they feel like dog biscuits. Yeah, and, 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 and he had other songs like I was saying, if you took those two songs off and you put Nowhere Is My Home in the original version of Can't Hardly Wait, this is maybe, this is by, I think, right, ex- then, right. then it takes over, yeah. let it be, and it's their best album. Right. But, you know, bands don't exist in a vacuum. There's sort of day to day realities. Yeah, that, and that's, that would have been a great decision. <laughs> yeah, you know, wh- when I hear an outtake like, uh, like Nowhere Is My Home, it's very sad to me because, you know, it's obviously, you know, as a, as a fan, you can tell. It's cut from the running order, so there could be more singer-songwriter stuff uh, because those brilliant, scorching, wandering lead guitar lines that it just immediately had to have disqualified the track. For well, and you know, the, the other thing, though, too, is by this point, again, they were on the road probably the most they'd ever been in the in the lead up to recording this album and again there wasn't as much time there wasn't as much kind of space for Paul to write so a lot of these things that are on here are sort of ideas uh, almost that he evolved in the studio and Paul always did that to a certain extent he wouldn't have 100% finished lyrics he never really wrote stuff down uh, you know something like uh, here comes a regular sort of an exception that he kind of revised a little bit but you know things like hold my life or I'll buy I mean there's no real lyrics on there he just sort of made up stuff <laughs> you know, big chunks of them on the spot. And, and so, and I think those are great songs, but I, I, I just hold, my, hold my life has always been one of my favorite replacement yeah. songs. So I think there's a lot of mood and attitude and feel on this record rather than kind of the refined songs that right. maybe you had on, on, on the previous album on let it be, or that you would even have on the next one to a certain extent. So how do you guys feel overall? What's your Joe? What do you give it? I give this four stars and I am, um, I, you know, there's so many good songs on it. It, it it's it, it is marred by like a few kind of throwaways, but um, this one that has a lot of the ones that I really kind of connect yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it has the big songs, you know. It's got, uh, uh, you know, Bastards of Young, Left of the Dial, Little Mask let's talk about the regular. Let's talk about that video. Let's talk about the inception of it. Let's talk about <laughs> the fact that it was uh, used how many fucking times? <laughs> At least three. I don't know that much of them got air- airplay other than the original, which was for Bastards of Young. But yeah, I mean, basically Warner, Warner Brothers, you know, this is the height of the video era. Warner Brothers wanted to get them on and do a video. They're already on record, you know, that saying that they think videos are dumb. On yeah, the, on the, senior on the pre- video. On the previous album. Se- right. Senior video. So, so, so the, the, the sort of way to, to make a video was to not appear in it, and, and they don't. Uh, although Paul and Tommy were sort of on the set, which was just the video director's apartment at that time, or producer's apartment at that time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a sort of one of those videos that didn't actually achieve what it was supposed to do, which was get played on MTV a whole <laughs> lot. But it's still one of the, become one of the most legendary. iconic. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's a and kind I, of the ultimate anti-video correct me if i'm wrong but not only is it not uh completely it's not reused it's actually a different version for the yeah they just 
they just recut it slightly. One's in color, one's in black and white. <laughs> one, he's flipping through different records. Uh, right. You know, so so they you know they were trying to get value for money there, since probably nobody was going to air this stuff anyway. <laughs> the, the hook of uh, Bastards of Young. It's another one where like they're the protagonist. You know, we are the sons of no one. Bastards yeah. of Young. You know, it's, it's uh, well, that's such a great hook. Yeah. Um, you know, um, kiss me on the bus. I mean, you can't write a better song. I than love that, really. that. I love that. Yeah. It's an impossibly well written song. Um, that's uh, another one that felt really just so true to me. The sort of like you know, being the shy guy who doesn't want to talk to the girl on the bus. Yeah, and anymore. I guess I, if, you know, because even though it does has a couple of, I, you know, I wouldn't even say duff, duff, duff moments. I mean, Dose of Thunder is a kind of fun song in its own way. You just kind of know what could have been with this record. Mm-hmm. But I think because it has those those really yeah, sweet I don't, spot I don't Westberg love, I don't classics. love uh, Waitress in the Sky. I don't love, well, Lay, <laughs> I don't love Lay It Down Clown. Right. And, well, uh, wait, Waitress is kind of fun. But, you know, overall, I think, you know, you, you, you have to say this is, a, I mean, for me, Minimum four, but I'd say really four and a half, just because it has the 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 essential Westerberg songs, at least you know four or five of them. I give it three and three quarter stars, so <laughs> I'm I actually am in the, the least of you guys, but I'll tell you one thing: I will definitely support your remix of it, just as a curiosity <laughs> factor, because you know uh, I don't think it's necessarily going to fix it. I think the problems with this album are inherent in the album, and I don't think they're huge huge problems it's just when you're operating at such a high level it's noticeable so here's where here's where little tiny bobby mayor comes into the picture <laughs> because bastards of young and kiss me on the bus are uh, are shot out in grandiose style uh, on SNL on January 18th, 1986. Now, if you watch that performance now, they actually sound pretty good. Yeah. It, sound, like, it sounds like a good performance. I don't know. I, I never, yeah, no, I, it's, not the, it's not that they sounded bad. I mean, there was obviously things going on backstage, which if you read my book, you kind of get a sense of the bigger picture of what was going on both at SNL and with the right. band and backstage. But right. yeah, I mean, now it doesn't, it doesn't seem, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem as crazy as like when Fear was on there right. on SNL right. a few years before. With, although, yeah, although, yeah, although Lauren Michaels wasn't there at the time. But um but no, but it, it's a great sounding thing. But in the context, if you saw anything else that was on TV, uh, bands playing on TV at that time, it it's it does feel like these guys are drunk. They were on because the, uh, the Pointer yeah. Sisters canceled. Yeah, that's the that's the story. Yeah. So, so yeah, so so it's it's oh definitely still holds up. And again, like a lot of things in the replacements career, it was seen as like a bad decision or a kind of flop at the time, but now it's become this iconic thing. Right. Well, at this point, what's their relationship with the suits at the record label? How are they, how are they like, you know, they're about, so they've made Tim, obviously all the stuff's happening with Bob. They're kind of at a bit of a crossroads. I mean, it's a, it's a success critically, but not hugely commercially. They were still, they were still essentially, you know, uh, not really being hassled by the suits. I mean, they right. were in the Warner Brothers system, but Michael Hill, you know, was basically their peer. Seymour Stein was as crazy, if not crazier, than they were. So it wasn't like they were getting hassled by real corporate higher ups. You know, right. Warner you know, Brothers, one of the more artist-friendly labels. Yeah, but also, you know, the replacements were still. This was kind of um, a, a trial balloon, you know, in terms of a, a major label marketing and a, a quote-unquote alternative band. The idea of alternative marketing really was kind of pioneered by. Some of the people at Warner Brothers who are working with their placements. So their placements are kind of guinea pigs, you know, pioneers. And, you know, like they say, pioneers get the arrows, too. So uh, from the record company side, that was that was going on as well. But but generally, there was a lot of hope and excitement and um, anticipation because 
a lot of now that they were on a major label, they were getting written about in big magazines. You know, they were in the first Rolling Stone hot issue in 86, right. you know, the hot right. band. Uh, they were, you know, L.A. Times, which was big for Warner Brothers because it was in their backyard in Burbank. Uh, Robert Hilburn was a huge fan. So they had a lot of big, you know, they were be- becoming a critics band on a much larger level. And so the, the label was kind of taking its cues from that and saying, OK, well, they didn't sell a million records on this, but there's obviously right. something here that we need to nurture and develop. And Warner Brothers was still in the business of doing that with its bands, even even as late as 85. And, and then, you know, the you know, the carrot is being dangled, albeit it still is very hazy and out on some distant horizon, but it's being dangled. And Paul looks around and sees this wild unhinged guy who's drinking all the time, who seems to be stealing some of the spotlight with his hot licks. And uh, in summer of 86, the very last recording session occurs uh, with uh, the replacements as the band as we knew it up to this point. Uh, this is in August of 86. So Bob shows up for a recording session. They do uh, seven songs, Bundle Up, Birthday Gal, IOU, Red Red Wine, Photo, Time is Killing Us, and Valentine. And uh, after that, that was it for, uh, for Bob. Phase three, Paul Westerberg featuring The Replacements. 1987 to 1990. So before we actually move into the thing, what happened during that session, Bob? Uh, Well, Bob, you know, his relationship with the band was fraying. His own mental health was sort of getting worse. He had just gotten married, so he was kind of separating himself. I think he also just had that thing of wanting, he wasn't quite comfortable with the road and sort of being away from home. He preferred to be a kind of big fish in a small pond in Minneapolis. Those and tours also, um, have a reputation of being very wild, but their, yeah. their behavior was like extremely, extremely, yeah, a lot, lot just, of shenanigans I mean, on those tours. Yeah, I mean, Bob had bigger issues than, than the band, but I think those things from his childhood were starting to catch up with them. Right. And also, I just think the band was going in a direction that, you know, wasn't, you know, great for him or anything he really necessarily wanted to be a part of. Uh, it had been this fun, great thing for five, six years at that point, seven years almost. And, and it was ceasing to be fun, and there were other things going on, I think, in his life that, that sort of took priority. The spotlight and is, you know, the spotlight's hard for some people, um, you know, especially someone like Bob, who's you've suffered, like, straight-up abuse. He was really abused as a child. And I think the weight of the band shifted to more to Tommy uh, because, you know, he was young. He was kind of had this energy. Uh, and Paul obviously was going to always carry a certain amount of weight. And Bob, you know, to a certain extent, got marginalized and marginalized himself to a certain extent uh, as well. Uh, but uh, so it was kind of the the only way the band really could have carried on at that point was, uh, you know, to part ways with Bob. Uh, and so it was kind of, an you know, as difficult as it was. Was it just understood? Was it implied? Was it uh, the failure he, of young, I mean, he, young men he, to communicate adequately? Yeah, I mean, there certainly was that going on. But, I mean, he basically was abdicating his responsibilities and wasn't able to maintain, um, you know, as, as much as the others were abusing drugs and alcohol, they were still doing the gig. And Bob was, wasn't was doing the gig as much. I mean, he didn't show up for that, the sort of second day of the session, the demo session for what became Pleased to Meet Me. And that was kind of the final straw. But it had been a year year in the making, a year coming. And, and in a way, you know, Bob was relieved and, you know, ended up having some good years in the immediate aftermath of the replacements. Uh, but, you know, it was a tough decision. You know, you split in with Bob, who's really the founder of the band or certainly the co-founder of the band. And, and you know, Tommy's having to make the choice to whether to keep him or kick him out. But it really was a choice of do we keep Bob and just break up and we're not a band anymore? Or do we fire Bob and just try and keep going? And I think, you know, everybody's sense at that point was there was enough momentum and value in keeping going. So they right. sort of galvanize themselves and they come out with a sort of even more ferocious kind of energy as a three piece. 
um, some of the performances on Please to Meet Me are like pretty impressively uh, scorching. They sound great as a band on this record. Yeah, you know, band band dynamics. I mean, they, in a way, they tracked Tim as a, as a three piece, and then Bob came in later and did his solos. But they were always kind of three guys waiting around for the fourth. When they knew Bob was out of the band, the sort of the the, the sort of dynamics, the calculus of the group shifted. Yeah, some, really I mean, some, uh, you could, before you even get to the record, the the demos for the record in fall of '86. You can you can tell if you listen to it back to back with that final session with Bob that they're far less tentative. Boom! Yeah. It's just there's a there's a, uh, a seriousness of intent and an efficacy that just didn't seem to be there uh, just previous. Yeah, I mean, I think they were trying to make a go of it. I think the the other guys were trying to sort of you know it's like demos. You're always it's it's the inception, so they're. There's a kind of freedom there where uh, uh, where you're not you know it's there's no red light there's no producer they were that's the first time probably they were really working without a producer or somebody watching over them because by that point they had parted ways with Jesperson as well and so I think they were they felt even in the demo session all right let's kick it up a notch and then when things didn't work out with Bob they still carried that energy and that new sort right. of power trio dynamic into the making of the record which they did with jim dickinson down in memphis and jim obviously plays a a pretty central role in how that record unfolded it does you know in a in a very very real way it kills me to admit that there's a sharper focus without bob because uh being uh, ejected from the band ultimately seems to have become bob's fast track excuse to kill himself and he wound up doing it on, you know, he wound up dying February 18th, 1995, at the age of 35, of organ failure caused by years of substance abuse and neglect. Uh, they, he had a son uh, with his wife uh, in 1989 who was profoundly disabled. Um, his wife filed for divorce around 92. Uh, the son died in 2010 uh, at the age of 21. So it was definitely a life, a difficult life, fraught with tragedy, fraught with difficulty. And I think even though this may have been inevitable, it's very sad that it had to happen. It was his band. So it, it's a rough transition, but that's, uh, that's how it'd be. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough world, that rock and roll. <laughs> well, going back to where we were in 87, though, they're, so they're making this in 87, right? comes out yeah. in that, later that year. Yeah. So the sound of this one, they, they did it at Ardent Studios, um, which is where the big star records were made. Um, Jim Dickinson producing. You know, Obviously, it doesn't sound like Sister Lovers or something, but it's, I, I do love the way this record sounds, despite the fact that it does have a lot of like digital reverb on it. It's very reverby sounding, usually not my favorite thing, but there's just something about that there's, there's a propulsiveness to this record. It's really like s- slamming. It, re- it really sounds like there's a lot of energy. Jim's idea was to make it sound like a giant boombox blaring, and it kind of does sound like that. It does, and, yeah, that's great. They were recording on very early uh, uh, Mitsubishi 32-track digital machine, right. but they kind of, Jim, you know, even though he had two great engineers in John Hampton and uh, and um, and uh, Joe Hardy, uh, you know, Jim was a kind of uh, a primitivist, but he was not afraid of technology. And so it's an interesting record in terms of like, as he put it, he was trying to get a, a high fidelity uh, production of a low fidelity band or vice versa, right, you know, right. kind of thing. And so, yeah, so it's, it has a kind of peculiar, unique, you know, sound for many myriad weird uh, technical reasons. Right. But um, but it, it's it, so it, slick. And, and, it, it is really slick, and, and and it's meant as a commercial artifact, and it. Pe- 
peaked at 131. Some of it, yeah. I think, is also Chris Mars is playing. He's gotten yep. so good by this point. He's just like a machine. He kind of reminds yeah, me the, a little bit of like it's. it's and some of the drums almost sound like they're on like, like a Pro Tools grid or something. He's so yeah. Good. Well, the, 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 there's that, and also they put an emphasis on his drumming. You know, it was the first time they recorded outside of Minneapolis. First time really recorded outside of, you know, the kind of home team sort right. of thing. And a lot of prom- guys prominent that, drum fills and things like that. Yeah. yeah and 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 uh, you know those guys were being Southerners. They were very sort of conscious of the rhythm, and they even did a bunch, of, employed a bunch of tricks to kind of focus him on his kick drum mm-hmm. and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it was an album built. And again, you know, an album is is kind of a zero sum game. If there's only three people on the album, everybody has more weight. Right. Parts there's more, more space. Important. There's more space. Yeah. yeah. And there's more space. So so it's a, it's a it's it is truly the unique album in their catalog in that it's the only sort of three-piece uh, record. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think and- ultimately it's a better album than Tim. It's more confident and assured. Uh, they pulled together in a really, really palpable way. Uh, the only thing that it could be faulted for from where I stand is that some of the material comp- uh, comparatively uh, is, half, is half rate. Not the first part of the record, but... To me, that stretch, uh, shooting Dirty Pool, Red Red Wine, and Skyway, uh, I'm not a fan. I think it, it really. I mean, see, Skyway is one of the classic lonely guy songs. I never got it. <laughs> that's I never what, that's understood. what. I, I mean, that, that's a song about a you know missed connection. It's a song about like you yeah, know, know. Well, not I, connecting I just never with somebody. With it. It's interesting though. Yeah, you, I think you're right. It's part of it because of Dickinson. Part of it because they worked at Arden. Part of it because I think there was a sense of, you know. They fired Bob from the band, so they needed to come out really roaring and maybe even in their own sort of roundabout, half-assed way. They were focused more. Uh, and also, like I say, Dickens kind of enabled them to do certain things that they maybe couldn't have under different circumstances. Right, right. And then, and then, and then he took over where, where they wouldn't finish something. Dickinson would kind of finish it in, a, in, in, in production or in, in, a, in a sort of production way. Uh, so I think it is the Kind of most similar to co- Sister Lovers was done. Had yeah. The same kind yeah, of role yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, there's, there's a kind of completeness and consistency to the album, whether that's the production or the performances or just the overall that um, I don't think exists on any of their other records in a funny way. And I think, and there's an accessibility, I think, to this record. Definitely very, very accessible. I want to point out that, you know, one of their best songs is an outtake and it's Birthday Gal. I think it's their absolute best outtake i always thought it was i can't believe that wasn't put on this record that well was- there was there was always talk of maybe doing a double album and they recorded tons of stuff and paul actually wrote a fair amount for this because there was a long layoff because he had broke his hand on the previous tour and they canceled mm-hmm. some dates and so uh in the in the 2020 box set that we did on on this record there's just tons of stuff uh and so so yeah so again like i say also learn how to fail that sh- that should have been on the record learn how to well. fail uh, run for the country. For the he had country. a lot. He had a lot of good incredible. songs, and yeah, it would have been an interesting. But you know, but I think Dickinson was wanting to deliver something to the record company, particularly after Tim, which was you know everybody was a little maybe disappointed in the sound or the power of that album that it didn't quite capture the band. Like if you listen to the 2017 um, live release we did live at mm-hmm. Maxwell's, which is from the which Tim is era. Amazing. Yeah, you the hear way, those. By the way, I grew up in Livingston, New Jersey. I've been to Maxwell's a million times. Right. That right. was recorded on my birthday uh, when I was 14 years old. Oh wow! Uh, so yeah, so like you can hear like what the band really sounded like uh, around Tim on that live thing, and so I think Dickinson was really m- more about giving them that big the big replacements as they were, right. and again you know, but 
it's not the big replacements because it's a three piece. So he was having to kind of fill in the gaps and the spaces. That's why you get the strings and the horns and outside players for the first right, time right. on a replacements record or, or real pro outside players. They've so done here, some stuff with local people. I want to throw out a giant chunk of steak and, you know, and you guys please just have at it. So here's where the tension begins uh, between, between being sort of young, rowdy ne'er-do-wells and growing up and going professional, whatever, whatever the fuck that means. The, I think that actually becomes the issue. No one actually knew what that meant. I think this is kind of the last time they had that kind of manic young person energy. The next couple of records are kind of in a, in a more mature sort of direction. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know is the big reflective, yeah. you know, the thing of the, of the mm -hmm. whole dilemma. Right. Yeah, but it's funny, you know, like people see this record and certainly to a greater extent, Don't Tell a Soul is like, oh, the replacements are getting more professional. They're settling down. They're doing, they're going for commercial success. But the reality was probably the most chaotic the band ever was, right, <laughs> was right, Please right. to Meet Me, Don't Tell a Soul and into, into All Shook Down, you know? Right, so it's right. sort of funny what's going on in the records isn't necessarily re reflective of how crazy things were, you know, in their lives. Well, before we move on, let's talk a little bit. We haven't talked too much bit, about we, songs. Yeah. Right, right. Let's, let's talk about the music because the music is, it's an embarrassment of riches, a smorgasbord of musical delights. Great opening line again uh, from the album, Get Me Out of This Stinking Fresh Air. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Great album opener. Um, um, uh, yeah, at IOU, that was a song that he he purloined the idea from Iggy Pop. I guess Paul had been hanging out after an Iggy Pop show on his bus and somebody stuck a you know piece of paper in Iggy's face to, to autograph and Iggy Pop wrote IOU nothing <laughs> right, Iggy Pop. Nice. Um, so, and then obviously the you know tribute to Alex Chilton who they were sort of associated with and hanging out with and Arden, you know, that was a big reason why they came to Arden was because of Alex and Big Star. Right. Um, and then, you know, you got the things like Valentine. And Valentine's Le amazing. And by yeah. the way, another unsung classic, Nevermind. Oh yeah. Yeah. Never mind, and you know that's the ledge. Only, that's like almost ecstatically. That gorgeous. has some serious yeah. swagger. Yeah. And, and and then there's things like "Can't Hardly Wait," which is a song they've been basically trying to record since 1984, that, and they find the friggin' classic. Yeah, and they, I'm and they finally. I'm glad they waited. The original version's great, but I, I do, I am glad they waited. Well, and you know, the, that was the thing with Paul is this is, he knew this was a good song. That's why he kind of kept, they recorded it for, you know, uh, for, for Tim, they recorded it for this. They had tried it with the Alex Chilton, even in the, before they made Tim. So it was this, it was, Paul would very rarely recorded songs multiple times. He was more likely to toss a song, you know, the way he did with Nowhere Is My Home or something mm -hmm. and move on from it uh, because he just didn't have patience and he was always writing. But with this one, obviously there was something that, you know, kind of stuck in his craw about it. And Dickinson really found the approach, I think, uh, right. that worked and, and made it. So I don't know is another one that's it's such a great like, you know, that were again, they're the hero of the story. You know what that reminds yeah. me of? Should is, we buy uh, some beer? I don't know. Can I borrow your hairspray? <laughs> you know, it, remi it reminds line. me of Creek Alley by uh, the Mamas and Papas. Uh, yeah. But this yeah. is their their uh, replacement song. Yeah. Yeah. They're just these sort of tragic comic sort of yeah. characters, you know, um, the, this one, uh, this record, I give uh, four and a quarter stars. Yeah. This one I, to me, it's not it's maybe not their best album, but I think it is my favorite. And um, I give it five stars. Nice. How about you, Bob? Uh, I think I'm going to go four and a half. Nice. We 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 tend to be in a three quarter star range. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can, can you do? A, can I do? Can I do four and three quarters? I think it would be four and three quarters. I'd, <laughs> yeah, well, you totally can. This is the. Uh, by the way, 
there's going to be a shower of confetti coming out of your ceiling miraculously because this is the first time a guest has ever done. Yeah, you're now, you're now, I don't, you're now the second person in the world who's embraced <laughs> the quarter star. A lot of these ratings and, you know, kind of my mind has changed as I've gotten deeper into work, you know, your relationship to records change over yeah. time. And, you know, I always would have thought Tim was a five star, but I think, you know, a couple of songs. So I think I said, I read said yeah. four and a half on that. Yeah. And the first album five, you know, it might just because I've worked on, on, on some of these more recently than I, you know, please your to Sorry, changes on it. Yeah. 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 Especially so anyway. you. I mean, God knows, God, poor guy, how many times you've listened <laughs> to this stuff. Um, but I like to think that along the way, you still have these like unexpectedly transcendent experiences listening to it. Yeah, no, I mean, you hear you hear different things, and particularly with like the alternate versions or different, different songs. It's like you hear knowing these other songs exist, you sort of hear the songs you'd know in a different way too. You know, it just becomes all part of this one big, you know, uh, oeuvre or catalog right. of stuff, uh, a body of work. So it's, it's really kind of gratifying, you know, and, and that's kind of what we've tried to do for, for the fans as well, you know, to, to, to yeah. make this stuff available so that they can kind of have that new and different appreciation of, of, of these records that are so ingrained. Well, I will lap up every last scrap you throw at my, <laughs> at my feet. I sure. will. I will disgrace myself in doing so. <laughs> All right, let's get from 1987 to 1989. So we go into the Ledge EP, uh, non-album songs only. Uh, you got a few of them. Uh, I, I honestly am not uh, wild about the, the entire thing, except for one song, but Route 66, Election Day, Tossing and Turning, and then Jungle Rock. Jungle Rock is an awesome remake of Bundle Up, I think it should have been on Please to Meet Me. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a cover of a Hank Mizell song. It was a kind of rockabilly guy from the 50s. So, um, th you know, they're still doing the sort of odd, weird covers and, and, and recasting them for themselves. You know, that wasn't that was a pretty minor, I guess, release. You know, it didn't yeah, get sort of a wide, wide gap thing. EP. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and a lot of that stuff has come out over the years on different, you know, comps or, or, uh, or, or box sets, including yeah, know, yeah. kind of definitive one. But yeah, they, they, you know, like I say, Please to Meet Me could have been a double album because there was so much material. So that so a lot of that ended up uh, on that EP. Some of these have that signature sort of Please to Meet Me production style. Yeah. Um, so if you like that sound. But just more lesser of versions yeah. of that. Um, I actually forgot to give it a rating, so I'll give it um, uh, I, two and a half. I gave it three. Okay. Bob? Uh, the EP, I would say, yeah, three and a half, I guess. Three and a half? Yeah. You want to add a quarter to that? <laughs> yeah, let's add three and, <laughs> okay. three and three quarter stars. It's like Star Search over here. <laughs> All right, 1988. They're, uh, the, you know, they, uh, the only penny they toss into the hat that year is Cruella DeVille from How Willners Stay Awake com uh, compilation. Uh, another example of them getting a shot at the big time and missing. Was that uh, really a shot at the big time? I, I How big was the Cruella DeVille cover going to go? Comparatively, <laughs> I, I, I guess. It felt like it at the time, maybe. I give yeah. it three stars. I always liked this song. Not a major ordeal. They kind of they kind of nail it. I, don't know, I give it three and a half. Three and a half. You could easily hear like Buster Poindexter coming in and singing it. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be that surprising. But it's, yeah. I think they, they do the job. I'm glad I'm yeah. only imagining uh, Buster Poindexter <laughs> doing that. <laughs> All right, how about how about you, Bob? Yeah, oh, yeah, I like I like that version. I give it four stars. I can't tell if you're uh, reluctantly grappling with giving stars or if you're <laughs> pondering it so hard that I'm you just kidding. Just... I, I, every time I say every time I do one of the three quarter star things, I just hear Ed McMahon's voice, you know, on Star <laughs> Search. So it just it's that maybe that's what's throwing me off. <laughs> uh, okay. 
All right, now we're moving into a serious uh, mayor territory. Uh, 1989, Don't Tell a Soul. First, I want to ask you, Bob, was it originally intended to be called Dead Man's Pop? What's the derivation of the title? Uh, no, well, there was some talk of that. Yeah, in fact, that it had been announced in a couple of magazines, including Spin, that it was going to be called Dead Man's Pop. Um, and then Don't Tell a Soul was actually crops up as a line on Birthday Gal first, right, right, right. but then yeah, on, on on Will Inherit the Earth, he actually whispers it in the kind of the bridge or in the outro, and so that's where it right. came from. And so it has kind of multiple meanings, and I think maybe they, the photo, by the time they were taking the photos, he's kind of shushing, and so Don't Tell a Soul kind of plays with that, so Dead Man Pops somewhere along okay. the way so, fell, so, fell by the wayside. <laughs> okay, so this is the first replacements album uh, featuring Slim Dunlop, uh, uh, Bob Dunlop, uh, who replaces uh, Stinson, uh, Bob, that is. And, uh, you know, this has got a very, very different vibe. I, I remember at the time, first of all, I'm a huge fan at the time. All my friends in high school are huge fans at the time. <clears throat> and, you know, watching 120 Minutes, uh, seeing I'll Be You, I'll Be You, legitimately one of their best songs, I think. Uh, and then the record comes down the pike, and it's nothing like I think it's going to be. This is one where they. This is where they sort of lose that scruffy underdog sort of charm. You know, they, they, it's kind of hard to pull off the underdog shtick when it's like when the music is this polished. It, it, the record was made by Matt Wallace, produced it. He had kind of done. Uh, he was doing the Faith No More records around the same time, and he's kind of and he did kind of. He was kind of like a big indie alternative guy in the '90s and early 2000s. And then it was mixed by Chris Lord Algae, <clears throat> who was kind of like. A, has mixed like everything ever. He mixed like his big breakthrough was like he mixed some of those big Springsteen singles like Dancing in the Dark and I think Born in the USA. <clears throat> but he's sort of a modern day like uh, like Pro Tools turd polisher kind of mixer. He's a very glossy, very like, like he uh, in, almost invented the modern style of mixing. The the sound of the mix you can tell they were going for a very like polished wide stereo like commercial like much more so than um, the mix of Please to Meet Me. Was was what the final mix of "Don't Tell a Soul" uh, sounds like. So the you know the, the recent reissue with Matt Wallace's less polished mixes, as we were saying before, it's one of those examples where it's the, I, I prefer the alternative mix over. The, well, and over it, this I'll tell you the story that basically you know they had flirted with using outside mixers on "Please to Meet Me" in terms of the single. Jimmy Iovine had done a pretty minor rework of "Can't Hardly Wait," which you know is available as a seven inch or whatever. Yeah. But um, I, I like that. I like that uh, Iovine remix. Yeah. So basically, they went and made this record. It was a kind of a lot of pressure on this album to succeed after uh, once again, you know, Please to Meet Me, everybody had really heightened expectations. It fell short because they started with The Ledge as a single mm -hmm. and the, and, and Which is various weird. things. That's fucking yeah. weird. Well, it, it seemed, again, you got to realize radio at the time, alternative radio wasn't a, a force. And so they still had to kind of focus on album-oriented rock. And that was uh, as a radio format to get it played. And that seemed like the most album-oriented radio song, you know, very much like Blue Oyster Cult sounding kind of thing. Uh, anyway, what happened is just dumb luck and the replacements. It was a song about suicide. There was a bunch of teen suicide. MTV got cold feet. They stopped playing it. Yeah. Radio stopped playing it. Cut the legs from out from under the record. Um, and so, you know, it, it sold more than Tim, but not as much as they were hoping but there was still again with the replacements there's always enthusiasm from the record company so they went in to make a new record tried to get a bunch of different producers started making the record up in Bearsville New York with Tony Berg who was a young guy but you know had had real chops as a producer and musician 
the fit didn't work with him and the replacements. Those sessions blew up. Matt Wallace, who is also young, but kind of a little bit more in tune with the replacements and could roll with the punches, he sort of made a really great record. But because he was so young and he hadn't had the hits with Faith No More yet, the the sort of insurance policy from the label and management side was, let's go hand it off to a real pro hit-making mixer, and maybe he can sort of transform the record into the hit record that we want, sell a bunch of copies and get on the radio. And that was Chris Lord Algae. Uh, to the extent that Lord Algae did what Lord Algae does and was tasked with by the label and, and management, he succeeded. It was their biggest selling record, sold about 300,000 copies. The single got to top 50, top 51 or whatever on the charts. But, you know, in the third and, and, and there was a lot of blowback because it was seen as a very non-replacement sounding record. It was a lot of chorus, a lot of effects, a lot of the sound was sort of scrunched in a way that, you know, basically Lord Algae kind of does his thing. And lots he of did compression, it to, very yeah, heavy lots compression. Of compression. Yeah. And he did that to replacements record. And so people thought rightly or wrongly, oh, the replacements have compromised. They've sold out. They're trying to get on the radio, blah, blah, blah. They made this record. Well, it's true that they released that record, but in fact, they had made a completely different record and a record that was a much more logical follow-up sonically, but, but thematically. But hold on, wait, wait, hold on. Let's just pump the brakes for a sure. second. So the, if we can. The sure. dis- uh, we're talking about sonic distinction between one record and another, and there's definitely a, a, a sort of a sweeping difference between the two. But yeah. as far as the material uh, itself, the material is sort of irreducible. So the, the we have more mature themes, a heightening level of disillusionment going on. Yep. Um, I remember the day it came out. I bought it the day it came out. Was driving around in my um, used uh, <clears throat> uh, Golf, my Volkswagen Golf, <clears throat> 1987. Uh, driving around my hometown, in Livingston, New Jersey, uh, feeling really disappointed that somehow their music had shifted into what felt to me like sort of desultory middle of the road. Uh, it felt empty. The only thing I was thinking was, why had this been the sound they'd selected? And why were these the messages they were trying to get across? Right, right. Well, I think the 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 songs, you know, people can like them or not like them, or certainly they were changing. Paul was changing. The band was changing. The way he was writing was changing. And that's a natural thing. After 10 years as a band, there's going to be, and there always was with replacements, sometimes incremental, sometimes bigger leaps from record to record. But I think the, the question that I was sort of trying to address, and I think that the, obviously the Matt's, you know, kind of new mix does on Dead Man's Pop is it wasn't just a mix. It wasn't just a sonic thing. There were creative choices that were were made by Lord Algae that changed what the record was. You know, if you mute out a banjo at the end of talent show so you can't hear it, that's not just a mixing decision. That's right. a creative choice. Yeah. And so and then it changes right. your whole sensibility and understanding of what the band's intention was. Yes, the songs are still the songs to a certain extent. But, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, it's not just a different, you know, it, it's it's a good lesson in how much uh, mixing can make a difference. Mixing, you know, people think sure. of it as a sonic thing, but it's an editing choice. And sure. if, you know, if you record six guitars, you know, on a track, on an album, on a song, on a track, and you use one of them, <laughs> you know, it's, it has, it not only does it, is that changing the mix, you're actually changing the intention of the band. And I think that's really... So, so let me ask what, you point blank, okay? Sure. I, there's no question in my mind. I mean, like, you, I think you have to be a fool to think that Don't Tell a Soul is better than Dead Man's Pop. Right. But my question to you is, do you believe that making it Dead Man's Pop makes it a great record or a better record than what it was? It's... 
that's a tough thing because it's hard to unhear an album. If you compare yeah, them, yeah. I, as I listen to it, it's like, holy shit, this is a, a, a really, before where it was a sort of ho-hum disappointment album, it's like, no, this is actually a really good album. Yeah, and yeah. it makes a lot of sense in the con, after coming after Please to Meet Me. It, it's that you see the through line and it feels right. But you also can't undo history in 30 years of context and knowledge that you have about the about a record. So it and 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 it's fair to say the songs are not the exact same kind of songs. But I do think what was done to them really did make a, a difference in how the songs were perceived and how the intention of the band was perceived. And so I think in as much as you can sort of change history and right or wrong, I think Dead Man's Pop does that and. And it's not just a sonic thing. It really is about creativity and intention and meaning and the choices that were made that some third party came in and basically wiped all those out. And so I think it's, you know, I mean, the band made that decision consciously, obviously, because they wanted to have some kind of success after 10 years. But I think if you're just talking as a pure creative thing, um, Dead Man's Pop isn't just a, a different mix, it's a different record. And I think had that record been released in 89, you and your Jetta would feel a lot different about <laughs> right, it, right, you sure. know. <laughs> so. This record to me, it was interesting listening to it this go around um, and and comparing those two, you know, comparing the two Dead Man's Pop and and Don't Tell a Soul. For for starters, this is this record to me is much more goes with um, All Shook Down because it's a it's a really a songwriter record, right? There's not so many songs in this record that are like this song is about the band playing like a kick ass powerhouse band, like even on Please to Meet Me song like IOU or something. That's really about the sound of how amazing they play. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of more singer-songwriter where they're kind of playing to support the song. They're kind of a little bit different kind of band, similar, I think, to All Shook Down. It's a different kind of mode that he's in as a songwriter. That's a good observation. In fact, that's exactly what happened because this is the first record that they didn't really... um, exception of one song, Darlin' One, which they wrote on the sound check of the previous tour. All these songs, Paul basically wrote by himself with a drum machine and, de- and gave the band finished demos, which then they tried to learn and kind yeah, of replicate. Yeah, there's no like real bangers that where you get the sense that they wrote this in a basement somewhere or something. You know, there's, that, was always pre- that was always present throughout all their other work. And Talent just, Show is probably one that sort of is more mostly like that. I mean, Darlin' One, even in its own way, they like I say they kind of did actually it was the only song they did really write on uh, as right. a band and it's it's credited that way right. but yeah there there was a there was a you know again uh, Paul's almost thirty at this point they're not teenagers you know hanging out all day and night with each other they have lives and wives and 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 you know different things and so it did that did change the way and also Paul getting a drum machine and a four track that changed it so I think. Right. Uh, yeah, but he had recorded with drum machines before, and no problem. But he, now, he hold on. But now, but now he's pumping out what I, I consider back to back to be a, a puddle of diarrhea. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like John Waite. He'd never done a whole record that way, and I'm I'm just saying in terms of if you're hearing it, you're right. If you are, are hearing it as a different kinds of songs and written in a different way, it's because you know, in a true, truly in a technical sense, in a logistical sense, it was written differently. Right. Uh, and and this and all shook down, or you know, kind of the two 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 of a piece. But in the end, he takes it to the band, and you know, you take the songs to the replacements. There's still going to be an element of replacements in it, um, but. But again, it, it's, you know, it's not 1979, it's 1989, and so things are going to be different. Yeah. Um, but again, I think, you know, it's one of those things, no, you can't ever, you know, I, I, we couldn't, you know, there's no way to completely change and erase Don't Tell a Soul yeah. and the impact it had and the way people perceive it or the way 
people in here. I do appreciate you acknowledge that you'd have to be nuts to, to like it. But, you know, I feel like there's some people who are like, well, I like both versions. Some people are like, well, I still like Don't Tell Soul because and I understand that. One song of theirs that's a really great song that they just didn't nail on either version is They're Blind. That's such a well-written song. And I feel like neither version of it really captured. At he best. does sad resignation really well. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, the Andy Wallace version is a much slower version and it's cool. And it's it's a it's a much more like kind of artful kind of artfully done kind of version. Um, but it's it's just a little too well, slow. I, yeah, yeah. I like yeah I like the I like the version that's on a, a Dead Man's Pop because I think it restores the original guitar. So that was one where label politics, you know, the label guy's like I don't know about this, so they changed the solo, and then Lord Algie did his thing. Probably the best version of their blind is the Bearsville version, which is like a demo, right, just Paul right. acoustic, and that's really the purest form. Well, such a good uh, song. Of that well, yeah. that middle eight is so good. So so I would say uh, don't tell us all. I'll give that two stars. Uh, You know, I I feel like as far as material goes, the only three songs that I care about from the record are Talent Show, I'll Be You, and Darlin' One. I don't really care about the rest of the record. Uh, And there's a couple songs I actively don't like, especially the two-song stretch, Anywhere is Better Than Here and Asking Me Lies, not into that one-two punch. I would I would add Aiken to be in their blind, too, but as I, I like them. I'll say that your, your redux, uh, my friend, I would say mm-hmm. bumps it up to... Uh, to three stars, so thank you for that. Uh, uh, most, almost all of these remixes and such that come down the pike, I listen to out of curiosity and discard. Always listen to the original one. You have supplanted uh, "Don't Tell Us All," and that well, that's, that much that's, I appreciate. That's definitely gratifying. Yeah, I would say for me is maybe like it was a two and a half star originally, and I'd say. We got it up to three and three quarter stars. Maybe if I'm feeling uh, uh, proud, I, I, it's a four, you know, for me. So it's behind, uh, behind. If you, know, you were in the studio right now, I'd be embracing you wildly. For <laughs> I don't believe in qu- I don't believe in quarter stars. Yeah, I know he doesn't. So it's <laughs> great a, to finally is, meet a brethren. It's, <laughs> this is a two and a half, three and a half for me. So yeah. we're all kind of on the same. Yeah, page. yeah, yeah. totally. So also the the rarities. Let's talk about. Uh, just a few songs, especially "We Know the Night," "Portland," and "Wake Up." Uh, those those three songs are really great. Again, you know, like a lot of replacements records, they left off maybe some of the best stuff. I think "Portland's" one of their great songs. Yeah, that's uh, a great song. You know, they didn't really even attempt that with Matt Wallace. That's from the Bearsville version. Right. Um, you know, "Wake Up," which was kind of like a, the, a, a sort of a throwaway rocker, but kind of fun. Again, they, they scrapped a few things because Paul, you know, just is his tendency. He'll get tired of songs and he won't repeat them. You know, even from session to session for the same record. So, you know, the next step is, you know, first I want to deviate and say. The, the mythology, as accepted, is that the ribeye is the best steak because <laughs> fat makes things tasty uh, and, and fillets are you know, not even to be sampled. Uh, the narrative also says that All Shook Down is you know, the, you know, the sad, unfortunate ending to the replacements. I've always deemed this to not be the case. I've always loved this record. I want to start with that foot forward. Uh, and say that even though it's you know got its weirdnesses <clears throat> in terms of you know the drummer being replaced here and there and just you know some session people that kind of thing um, and playing by the rules of the classic rock uh, rule book as far as that goes that I think it's a wonderful record filled with great material and they went out gracefully and with style. 
Uh, yeah, well, this record to me is you know similar kind of st- similar kind of approach making it. It's a singer songwriter record, but he's just got a better batch of songs for the most part. Th- this one has its own kind of distinctly kind of slick sound to it. This has a very like separated kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it very does not loud. Sound like they're in the same. Very room loud all. kind of snare drum thing. Very right. super prominently it's loud. A, it's a peculiar record because they basically Paul, as you say, he started. Well, he wanted to make a solo record. Then the management and label talked him into doing a band album, but then he started demoing it and then really making the record on his own. Him and Scott Litt, you know, had produced R.E.M. and stuff, and they started making it basically with an Akai sampler, again, with a making the record with a drum machine, and then replaced those the, the drum parts with real drums, and then he was bringing in other people. And there and were eventually, four drummers on the thing. Yeah. And then Tommy came in, and then so basically it's really, people see it as a Paul Solo record, but it's actually a Paul and Tommy record. Um, they made it together with various other people. It's not a band record in, in the sense. There's really only one song where, you know, Chris, Paul, uh, Tommy, and Slim are playing It's on. Attitude, right? Uh, yeah, Attitude, I believe. But, yeah. you know, Slim's on, Slim's on a fair amount of it and had a, had a, uh, had a fair amount of influence on it as he did uh, uh, Don't Tell a Soul. Let's talk about just credits because there's a lot of uh, vague crediting here. Yeah. Uh, I think it's only Tommy on bass, right? Because there's no yeah. bassist included on the on the list of, nah. of session musicians. Yeah, I think at one point, uh, this woman, Sarah, God, what that, Davis? Who, oh, I can't remember. She played with... Uh, Gang of Four and stuff like she was playing bass and it wasn't happening. And Tommy came in, so I think he is the only one that ended up on the record. It's just all okay. it's all Tommy, um, and then the drummers are the main thing. It's Drayton on yeah, uh, Char- several tracks. Charlie right. Drayton, right, who right, played right. on um, a bunch of famous records, but it was plays like it's like the drummer on like Love Shack is Charlie Drayton. Yep, okay. uh, and he's okay. an expensive. He was an okay. expensive wine. played with Keith, and he's right. he's he's actually out with Dylan right now. Um, and then Michael Blair, who played with Costello and Lou Reed, he's on several tracks, and then a few things don't have drums. Uh, right, and right. then, uh, and then Mars is on one, and uh, I believe Marl Magellan of the uh, uh, Georgia Satellites is on another. So yeah, it's basically a, a revolving so, drum so seat. So w- was Mars uh, the fact that Mars brought in cassette demos of his own material? Uh, was that just uh, was Paul ready to go, and that just kind of pushed him over the edge? No, I think. I, I mean, I think it was just like. The idea of like, hey, you know, we're 10 years into this band, we're a certain thing, we're not going to all of a sudden change roles now. Although, you know, there was precedence for that, I guess, with Creedence Clearwater but Revival. Had, where, had, where <laughs> yeah, but no, that was fucking genius to let everyone take a turn and then right. said, you know, I told you guys and then break <laughs> right, up the band. Right, That's right, genius. Right. <laughs> so he didn't quite do that, but I just think, you know, Paul, Paul was sort of dragged into making a band record kicking and screaming to a certain extent he sort of halfway did and halfway didn't realize he needed tommy they did some sessions as a band but really it's a kind of uh it's a kind of ghost replacements record in a way and it, right. it's it's the come down he was at the end of his drink i he think was about that to- that's precisely what it is it is the yeah. ghost replacements record and and that the oddly that kind of gives it a meta vibe because yeah uh, you know as a final record you feel the finality of it you know, some people love this record. Some people don't. I think Paul's writing uh, really was evolving, and it was this was like a new step for him. And there's some really, really great songs. I mean, the oh guy my writing, God, writing so "Sadly good. Beautiful" is the guy who was writing "Gary's Got a Boner" five years before. Yeah, you know, yeah, kinda, yeah. Kind of crazy. Someone, do, someone take the wheel. Nobody take bent the, out of shape. Yeah. The, the last is a, an absolute classic. It's a standard. I think it, it was just it, coming off of. 
an almost big record, you know, radio sounding record and Don't Tell Soul. This was like not what was expected or needed from a commercial perspective. Right. And obviously it was kind of a down note for the band to go out on. But as a record, as a collection of songs, as an evidence of him as a songwriter and even evidence of the ghost band, it's still pretty amazing with all these additional players. Uh, I think it's actually in, in a way probably their most underrated record in a funny way. Uh, yeah, uh, it, I'd have to agree with you. I saw, I saw them on this tour. I saw them in February 91 at the Orpheum in Boston, which right. is, uh, uh, I just met Joe six months previous. Uh, huh. He and I went to college uh, at Boston University. So I thought they were awesome, even though it was late in the game. So was that Steve Foley? Behind uh, the yeah, Steve, uh, Steve, Steve joined for the tour, yeah, because basically okay. they... You know, basically the, the the animosity with Chris was reached a building, you know, breaking point. Paul had said some stuff in an interview in Musician Magazine. Chris wanted him to retract. Wasn't going to happen. It was a kind of ultimatum situation, and that was it. And, you know, they were going to get different drummers. Uh, Gina Shock from the Go-Go's was proposed, Clem Burke. But in the end, they went with the guy who came into the bar. They said, next guy that comes into the bar, he's our drummer, whether he can play or not. <laughs> Fortunately, it was a guy named Steve Foley who had been in a million local bands. He was actually a very okay. good drummer. Totally different than Mars Moore. I going to say it was it was Don Henley. <laughs> uh, but uh but but yeah so he did the that final tour and um I don't actually think Steve did any recording even of the B-side stuff. I think that let's was Let's also uh, let's also mention that John Cale's on this fucking album. Yeah, he's on sad, he's on sadly beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. S Steve Berlin, Ben Montanch, you know, Johnette Napolitano. It's a, it's an interesting, you know, uh the, the like I say of all the records uh, the last two uh Don't Tell a Soul and and All Shook Down kind of have the craziest and deepest sort of stories behind the albums right. because of where the band was, which is funny because everybody thought, oh, you know, that's going to be the least interesting part of the book and, and, and my research, and it actually turned out to be the most interesting. So, you know, you can't always tell tell what what's really going on with the band just by the record or, or what the perception is. I, I can see why some people don't like this record. If you're certain fans of the band, if you're a yeah. fan of their unhinged, like scruffy, under, yeah. underdog kind of charm, this might not or be your if, thing. Or like if, if you've been like really noticing that West Westerberg is a genius since if, if only you were lonely, this is your record. <laughs> right, exactly. I can, I can right. see why. The, I, to me, this one's kind of split in the middle. I give this one three and a half. But I will say, um, you know, song for song, the songwriting is really deep on this record. It's probably the, yeah. you know, maybe maybe the most good songs he had for Pro a record at one time. Or? Probably the weakest link, which in a way isn't the weakest link because it, it, it gives you a sense of where he was, is he was so kind of alcohol poisoned and at the end of his rope by what right. he was making in this, he's so out of breath. Mm -hmm. uh, his his singing is just, so he didn't have wind as he put it. and right. But in a way that lends itself to the material. Because the session guys are playing everything so perfectly. So right. the fact that he's so ravaged has this creates a beautiful tension. Yeah, and so it's, it's it's anomalous, kind of weird catalog. It's a transition to a solo record. It's a ghost replacement record. But if you strip away all that stuff and you didn't know who this was or what this was and you just heard this record on its own merits, I think it would have a much better reputation than it does. But because it's in the context of replacements world, it sort of gets overlooked or sometimes dismissed. Yeah. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, I know it's uh, it's it's an ask. But I would like to read from my notes just because I, I felt inspired listening to this. The enigma of this record is that Don't Tell a Soul has the whole band and sounds less like them. And All Shook Down is the piecemeal version of the replacements and sounds more like them. So why is this a great Westerberg solo effort where uh, while his actual solo stuff 
in my opinion, mm. sucks so unrelentingly. This is their hangover record, <laughs> uh, waking up at the end of the 80s wondering why they bothered trying as hard as they did if they were just going to pack it in and grow up like every other schmuck who washed up onto the shore of the 90s. I know why this album should not work, but it always did work for me, contrary to popular opinion. Uh, it's not the sexy side of the rock and roll dream. It's the morning after. It's the session guys who showed up because the band themselves couldn't possibly be bothered. It's the clock-punching craftsmanship that kicks in, thank God, after the inspiration's dried up for good. I'll give it four and a half stars. Actually, I'm upgrading to five stars. <laughs> wow. Five stars, yeah. Um, I, I don't totally agree that his solo stuff is worthless, but that's for another show. But yes, I, I really love what you said there, and I do think that's it. I mean, it kind of captures the essence of this album. It's very, very weird, but it was written and recorded uh, under some weird circumstances, and kind of is the is the come down after a, a decade of uh, a decade long bender, you know, in a weird yeah, way. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, it, I think it has a in its weakness, in his physical weakness, in the desperation of the songs. There's a real power there, and and yeah, you nailed it. So. I would say I, I like it as I mean I like it probably at a four or even a four and a half. You, you've you've got me to bump up my numbers. Nice, four and a half. nice. Thank you. Well, I will say just to clarify, I don't think um, <laughs> I, I, I am not not a fan of everything. The first few records out of the gate, I really liked by him, and then when we pick back up at forty nine minutes, uh, which I re listened to today, I think it's amazing. Uh, completely yeah. revelatory, all that stuff. And I think he thinks that might be his best record too, in a weird way. So <laughs> I, I think that's his best record. I really do. Yeah. Well, all, all shook down for me. I think I like it more than most people, but not as much as you guys. I gave it three and a half, but yeah. but I do quite like it. I think you're nice. more representative of what, how. Most yeah, it's a little bit of a split this. down the middle for me because I really do like the songs. Some of them, I think, the arrangement is just kind of lacking. Yeah. They, some of them don't shine as much as they could. Maybe it, it, yeah. it's it's definitely the dark horse, and it's one of those yeah. records that uh, is not universally beloved, but yeah. it definitely has its fans. But it definitely has a strong, you know, strong songwriting throughout. So yeah, good yep. record. So 1991, don't buy or I'm sorry, don't sell or buy. It's crap EP. That has Ought to Get Love, Satellite, which is a Tommy song, and Kissing in Action. I'll just slap that with a two-star just so we can move on. Two for me, too. I'll give it three. I really like Satellite. Okay. You know, it's the first, first Tommy song. So. Maybe we'll uh, play this. That then. was released, anyway. Yeah. All right. You know what? We're going to, Bob, with your quarter-star predilection, I am going <laughs> to make sure that Satellite gets on the playlist. <laughs> okay. All right? I'm doing Sounds that right good. now, making that in the notes there. All right, so Westerberg that's, uh, then uh, gets two songs on the single soundtrack and his first solo record, 14 songs, released in 93. Does SNL again after mm -hmm. being uh, banned. Right. Yep. Because he throws on a suit. That's how it works. <laughs> Put on a suit, come on back. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, 14 songs definitely seemed like uh, there was plenty of promise for a commercial joyride for him. But it didn't really w work out that way for him, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> eventually, uh, did that fare well commercially, Bob? No, I, th I think, uh, I think uh, 14 Songs was his biggest solo seller, and then it was sort of uh, diminishing returns after that with uh, you know those two records and then the Capitol Records, Sue Gain Gratifaction, which sort of sold probably the worst of his solo ones. So yeah, it was kind of you know downward uh, downward numbers from the first from 14 songs on. I do yeah. have I do have to say that Sue Gain Gratification is his 
most uh it's so awkward as it's far one of his as least satisfying puns it's it's the <laughs> it's the nadir of his pun work it really is the uh, you know the album you remember it's is it 59 minutes 49 minutes 49. That one? the one that's all 49. one track it's so good that one i feel like if if you just conventionally put it out with track listings and stuff and, and they'd promote it a little bit i think people would have liked that well then we go where then we're it's 2006 and uh don't you know who i think i was comes out and holy shit, it's Message to the Boys and Pool and Dive. And I like both songs, but I especially, of course, with the tip of the hat and the title, I can't help but like Message to the Boys a little bit more. I give them both three stars. Message to the Boys is the better of the two, I think, pretty clearly. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's like a three and a half and a two and a half. Mm-hmm. Those, those two songs yeah. for me. Yeah, um, I give it three. Uh, but yeah, cool release. Josh Freeze on drums on that. In 2013, we have Songs for Slim EP. So this was... Uh, recorded and sold to uh, to benefit Slim, who had unfortunately suffered a stroke. So right. uh, Chris Mars had contributed to one song, Radio Hook Word. Chris hit. Mars would like he'll put his like toe in the pool to do a replacement right. thing, but won't but jump also, in the water. He did the art. Right. Yeah, it's a toe art. in the pool. Yeah, exactly. Get behind exactly. a drum kit, dude. That's what we want. And, and <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't love it. Uh, I give it two stars, but uh, it's nice that they they're, have, they're having fun. I, get, yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't rate this. I get rated it NA. I mean, if the real, you know, obviously Chris's song was more of a solo song, but Busted Up, which is the Slim song they did, and then they sort of threw on uh, some covers. Uh, I'm not saying Gordon Lightfoot, Lost Highway, the Hank Williams yeah, song, yeah. Uh, Leon Payne, and then everything's coming up. I, you know, I don't know. I just really like those songs because I know they kind of have. Specific kind of meaning to Paul, so I, I really like this record. I mean, it's it's slight, obviously, in in terms of a, a bigger thing, but I give it maybe three and a half. Yeah, you know, I felt like an asshole giving it two. I felt kind of desultory <laughs> to saying the words. So whatever. I mean, it's not going back my, now, man. You can give my rating whatever rating you want, but <laughs> um, but l- here's here's now we're kind of you know at the present. I, I will ask though, you know what uh, what's going on in Westerberg world these days. Uh, he's pretty much retired in painting and uh, has given up guitars and rock and roll and songwriting as far as I can tell. But I say that this week and, you know, he might put out a record next week. Who knows? That's the kind of guy he is. So. How irascible is he in terms of the legacy of the replacements? Day by day, does his outlook toward the fans and toward his work change or does he have one outlook? I think since the reunion and then since the book and since these projects, you know, he's sort of divorced himself from it. I think after the reunion was kind of the the victory lap in a way or the kind of... Uh, Is he happy? Is he happy with how everything went or does he have regrets about... No, I think I think the regret I think that 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 reunion was so successful and people were so happy and they played really so well that like you couldn't walk away from that even he couldn't walk away from that right. feeling, you know, unsatisfied. I mean, I think it it, it, what it it was what it was, but I think that was the line in the sand for him. It's like, okay, now that's fully part of my past. So he's at peace with everything. There's nothing turbulent about his... I'd never speak for him, and I would never say he's at peace, but I don't think it's... You know, they, they did their part. They said their piece. They did the reunion, gave everybody a kind of chance to see them who, who didn't get to see them the first go-round. Um, and since then, he's sort of handed... The, the the legacy part, not that any of those guys really, you know, were great custodians or tenders to their <laughs> legacy. He's kind of handed it off to, to to me and to his managers. He was and, a literal and, custodian, <laughs> right? That's right. Um, so so yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of taken on. It's it's like you know anything you do at a certain point. If you're an artist, if you get big enough or are deeply loved in a certain way, you have to let it go. It's no longer in your control. And I think at this point, you know, he's he's 
you know, unless you're Elvis Costello and you want to make micromanager issues and things like that. I think Paul was never that guy. Why are they nicknamed the Mats, which is one of the fucking worst band nicknames of all uh, time? Well, I think it was a, I think it was a drunken thing for placemats, which was a, and then a bunch of girls who were kind of in the scene started calling him that. And he sometimes calls him that himself. I never, I never got with that for, for whatever reason. Yeah, some people don't, I, but it's good for me because it was another way of not saying replacement 6,000 times. Right, before. right. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but here's the, you know, Bob, tell me if you connect with this. So, you know, uh, every, uh, you know, I get a lot of charge out of this is, you know, mm -hmm. is really devouring everything in one sitting. Obviously, that's the basis for the show. But then to talk about the overview and the shape of their arc, as, as you can only see by doing this work. So uh, here's my uh, prognosis. Scurrying out of the canon. They showed that they were somewhat willing to play by the rules and utilize certain signifiers to demonstrate devotion to genre. That is until they tore up the playbook and invited their fans on a wild ride that reeked of anything goes musical freedom. Unfortunately, without rules, it's hard to create a sustainable work environment that avoids the pitfalls which swallow up everyone else. And that's when the walls began closing in on them. So my top three albums, <clears throat> number three is All Shook Down. Number two is Sorry Ma. Number one is Let It Be. <clears throat> Worst album I will specify is the Don't Tell a Soul iteration of that project, <laughs> not the other. Uh, my top three, I have um, Sorry Ma at number three. Uh, Pleased to Meet Me at number two and Let It Be at number one. Um, and... Um, you know, there. I would say Tim is bubbling right under that. Under, under that'll be the next one there at number four. Um, but yeah, I love them. This was a lot of fun to do this uh, listen and to kind of you know when we do this show, we kind of listen to all these right in a row, and you kind of live in this world for a week, and it uh, it was a nice world to go this live in a for a while. This, I'm yeah. gonna miss it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, for me, I would say it's tough because you know it's always ever changing. I would say sure. still. Uh, for me, number three is probably pleased to meet me. Number two is let it be. And I would say in a weird way, Tim is just so close to my heart that wow, I, I, wow. I, and I think it, and I think it has the most important songs, but it was, comes with an so app. Cool. That's a cool it, number one, but it comes with an asterisk in that. And I, I mentioned in passing, technically the last, you know, whatever, uh, original material or original replacements album was the live album live at Maxwell's, which comes from that Tim period. Right. And to me, that record because it was recorded so it's well. Amazing. And, uh, it I amazing. think that if if I had to sort of convey, because I think the records, all of their records, in a sense, except for maybe the first one, have imperfections in terms of song choices or sure. certain production. things that were put on or production. Whereas I think that live record, in its best moments, is really the most pure distillation of what they were and why they were so great. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, in a, I, you know, I know that it's probably it's a live album. You could say that sort of cheating, but I would say, you know, Tim, but with a kind of almost asterisk of uh, the, the live at Maxwell's because it's the Tim era of that. You know, when I think they were kind worst? of at their peak. How about worst? Uh, the, the Don't Tell a Soul, the original Don't Tell a Soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but again, you know, with that has its own happy ending because of Dead Man's Pop. So right, yeah, it's, it certainly does, uh, and it's an even more joyous happy ending than a massage type happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we Speaking of happy endings, I think we're at the end. Yeah, yeah. We really, really want to thank you. I mean, uh, is there anything you want to uh, mention or or promote or talk anything. about to the to the? Yeah, uh, well, I, I don't know when this is airing, but uh, obviously, you know, we've got we've been 
been working on this really cool sort of series of replacements reissues, starting with Live at Maxwell's. We've done expanded versions of um, uh, Please to Meet Me, uh, Sorry Ma, don't ta- I Forgot to Take Out the Trash, and, you know, obviously the, the Don't Tell a Soul reimagining with Dead Man's Pop. And um, and this month, uh, in April anyway, uh, Record Store Day, we've got a vinyl breakout of the um, a live show from the Sorry Ma Box, which is the first professionally recorded show of, of the replacements in January 1981. And so it's an incredible thing that's coming that out on awesome. you know on, on nice. vinyl that's available for record store day. So that's that's oh, the new sweet. thing. And then if anybody's interested in finding out about the book, uh, Trouble Boys, True Story of the Replacements, available everywhere uh, or at replacementsbook.com. And it's truly a classic. It's uh, undeniably readable, super incredibly in-depth, and uh, you know very well written. It really takes your hand and you can visualize the entire thing. Yeah, it's very helpful for doing this show. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Awesome, guys. Well, I appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for letting me. I haven't really kind of thought about this stuff on such a deep level in, yeah. in a while. So I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to let my decade plus of replacements uh, thing not go to waste completely. You know what? The main thing I wanted to communicate to you during this was you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, thanks but, so much for being on with us, Sam. This was great. This is, yeah, yeah. This don't was, go this quite yeah, easy. but you know, before we uh, before we wrap up, we just want to say that uh, uh, you know, definitely follow us on all the social medias, regardless of whether, even if you hate social media, you live in the woods and you're a complete luddite. Sign up for all of them. Follow us on every single platform. Just to follow us. Let them track all your data and brainwash you with Russian right. propaganda. It's, it's obviously <laughs> worth it because we have top shelf content, including Bob, uh, 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 unbelievably, Bob Mare is here to talk about the replacements. So follow us, um, you know, subscribe. Uh, send us a voice memo in the link to the show notes. Hang out on the Facebook discussion group. Think. Yeah, just become involved. Give us, give us noogies in there. We, get, we have so much good stuff coming down the pike that it's almost embarrassing. I feel embarrassing, sort of like how Icarus must have felt in his more ambitious moments. Yeah, uh, he had so much podcast content. He, he, burned was, up. he was the most ambitious podcaster of all time. That's what <laughs> led to his demise. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we will see, see you next time on Discography. Discography.